William Harvey and the Discovery of the Circulation of the Blood by Thomas H. Huxley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. I desire this evening to give you some account of the life and labours of a very noble Englishman, William Harvey. William Harvey was born in the year 1578 and as he lived until the year 1657, he very nearly attained the age of eighty. He was the son of a small landowner in Kent, who was sufficiently wealthy to send this his eldest son to the University of Cambridge, while he embarked the others in mercantile pursuits, in which they all, as time passed on, attained riches. William Harvey, after pursuing his education at Cambridge and taking his degree there, thought it was advisable, and justly thought so in the then state of university education, to proceed to Italy, which at that time was one of the great centres of intellectual activity in Europe, as all friends of freedom hope it will become again sooner or later. In those days the University of Padua had a great renown, and Harvey went there and studied under a man who was then very famous, Fabricius of Aquapendente. On his return to England, Harvey became a member of the College of Physicians in London and entered into practice, and, I suppose, as an indispensable step thereto, proceeded to marry. He very soon became one of the most eminent members of the profession in London, and about the year 1616 he was elected by the College of Physicians their Professor of Anatomy. It was while Harvey held this office that he made public that great discovery of the circulation of the blood and the movements of the heart, the nature of which I shall endeavour by and by to explain to you at length. Shortly afterwards, Charles I having succeeded to the throne in 1625, Harvey became one of the king's physicians, and it is much to the credit of the unfortunate monarch, who, whatever his faults may have been, was one of the few English monarchs who have shown a taste for art and science, that Harvey became his attached and devoted friend as well as servant, and that the king, on the other hand, did all he could to advance Harvey's investigations. But, as you know, evil times came on, and Harvey, after the fortunes of his royal master were broken, being then a man of somewhat advanced years, over sixty years of age, in fact, retired to the society of his brothers in and near London, and among them pursued his studies until the day of his death. Harvey's career is a life which offers no salient points of interest to the biographer. It was a life devoted to study and investigation, and it was a life the devotion of which was amply rewarded, as I shall have occasion to point out to you, by its results. Harvey, by the diversity, the variety and the thoroughness of his investigations, was enabled to give an entirely new direction to at least two branches, and two of the most important branches, of what nowadays we call biological science. On the one hand, he founded all our modern physiology by the discovery of the exact nature of the motions of the heart and of the course in which the blood is propelled through the body, and on the other, 
he laid the foundation of that study of development which has been so much advanced of late years and which constitutes one of the great pillars of the doctrine of evolution this doctrine i need hardly tell you is now tending to revolutionize our conceptions of the origin of living things exactly in the same way as harvey's discovery of the circulation in the seventeenth century revolutionized the conceptions which men had previously entertained with regard to physiological processes it would i regret be quite impossible for me to attempt in the course of the time i can presume to hold you here to unfold the history of more than one of these great investigations of harvey i call them great investigations as distinguished from large publications i have in my hand a little book which those of you who are at a great distance may have some difficulty in seeing and which i value very much it is i am afraid sadly thumbed and scratched with annotations by a very humble successor and follower of harvey this little book is the edition of sixteen fifty one of the exercitationes de generatione and if you were to add another little book printed in the same small type and about one-seventh of the thickness you would have the sum total of the printed matter which harvey contributed to our literature and yet in that sum total was contained i may say the materials of two revolutions in as many of the main branches of biological science if harvey's published labours can be condensed into so small a compass you must recollect that it is not because he did not do a great deal more we know very well that he did accumulate a very considerable number of observations on the most varied topics of medicine surgery and natural history but as i mentioned to you just now harvey for a time took the royal side in the domestic quarrel of the great rebellion as it is called and the parliament not unnaturally resenting that action of his sent soldiers to seize his papers and while i imagine they found nothing treasonable among those papers yet in the process of rummaging through them they destroyed all the materials which harvey had spent a laborious life in accumulating and hence it is that the man's works and labours are represented by so little in apparent bulk what i chiefly propose to do to-night is to lay before you an account of the nature of the discovery which harvey made and which is termed the discovery of the circulation of the blood and i desire also with some particularity to draw your attention to the methods by which that discovery was achieved for in both these respects i think there will be much matter for profitable reflection let me point out to you in the first place with respect to this important matter of the movements of the heart and the course of the blood in the body that there is a certain amount of knowledge which must have been obtained without men taking the trouble to seek it knowledge which must have been taken in in the course of time by everybody who followed the trade of a butcher and still more so by those people who in ancient times professed to divine the course of future events from the entrails of animals it is quite obvious to all from ordinary accidents 
that the bodies of all the higher animals contain a hot red fluid the blood everybody can see upon the surface of some part of the skin underneath that skin pulsating tubes which we know as the arteries everybody can see under the surface of the skin more delicate and softer looking tubes which do not pulsate which are of a bluish colour and are termed the veins and every person who has seen a recently killed animal opened knows that these two kinds of tubes to which i have just referred are connected with an apparatus which is placed in the chest which apparatus in recently killed animals is still pulsating and you know that in yourselves you can feel the pulsation of this organ the heart between the fifth and sixth ribs i take it that this much of anatomy and physiology has been known from the oldest times not only as a matter of curiosity but because one of the great objects of men from their earliest recorded existence has been to kill one another and it was a matter of considerable importance to know which was the best place for hitting an enemy i can refer you to very ancient records for most precise and clear information that one of the best places is to smite him between the fifth and sixth ribs now that is a very good piece of regional anatomy for that is the place where the heart strikes in its pulsations and the use of smiting there is that you go straight to the heart well all that must have been known from time immemorial at least for four thousand or five thousand years before the commencement of our era because we know that for as great a period as that the egyptians at any rate whatever may have been the case with other people were in the enjoyment of a highly developed civilization but of what knowledge they may have possessed beyond this we know nothing and in tracing back the springs of the origin of everything that we call modern science which is not merely knowing but knowing systematically and with the intention and endeavour to find out the causal connection of things i say that when we trace back the different lines of all the modern sciences we come at length to one epoch and to one country the epoch being about the fourth and fifth centuries before christ and the country being ancient greece it is there that we find the commencement and the root of every branch of physical science and of scientific method if we go back to that time we have in the works attributed to aristotle who flourished between three hundred and four hundred years before christ a sort of encyclopaedia of the scientific knowledge of that day and a very marvellous collection of in many respects accurate and precise knowledge it is but so far as regards this particular topic aristotle it must be confessed has not got very far beyond common knowledge he knows a little about the structure of the heart i do not think that his knowledge is so inaccurate as many people fancy but it does not amount to much a very few years after his time however there was a greek philosopher erasistratus who lived about three hundred years before christ and who must have pursued anatomy with much care for he made the important discovery that there are membranous flaps which are now called valves at the origins of the great vessels 
and that there are certain other valves in the interior of the heart itself. Figure 1. The apparatus of the circulation as at present known. The capillary vessels which connect the arteries and veins are omitted on account of their small size. The shading of the venous system is given to all the vessels which contain venous blood, that of the arterial system to all the vessels which contain arterial blood. I have here a purposely rough, but so far as it goes, accurate diagram of the structure of the heart and the course of the blood. The heart is supposed to be divided into two portions. It would be possible, by very careful dissection, to split the heart down the middle of a partition, or so-called septum, which exists in it, and to divide it into the two portions which you see here represented in which case we should have a left heart and a right heart quite distinct from one another. You will observe that there is a portion of each heart which is what is called the ventricle. Now the ancients applied the term heart simply and solely to the ventricles. They did not count the rest of the heart, what we now speak of as the oracles, as any part of the heart at all but when they spoke of the heart they meant the left and the right ventricles, and they described those great vessels which we now call the pulmonary veins and the vena cava as opening directly into the heart itself. What Erasistratus made out was that at the roots of the aorta and the pulmonary artery, figure 1, there were valves which opened in the direction indicated by the arrows, and on the other hand, that at the junction of what he called the veins with the heart, there were other valves which also opened again in the direction indicated by the arrows. This was a very capital discovery, because it proved that if the heart was full of fluid, and if there were any means of causing that fluid in the ventricles to move, then the fluid could move only in one direction. For you will observe that as soon as the fluid is compressed, the two valves between the ventricles and the veins will be shut, and the fluid will be obliged to move into the arteries, and if it tries to get back from them into the heart, it is prevented from doing so by the valves at the origin of the arteries, which we now call the semi-lunar valves, half-moon-shaped valves, so that it is impossible if the fluid move at all that it should move in any other way than from the great veins into the arteries. Now that was a very remarkable and striking discovery. But it is not given to any man to be altogether right. That is a reflection which it is very desirable for every man who has had the good luck to be nearly right once, always to bear in mind. And Erasistratus, while he made this capital and important discovery, made a very capital and important error in another direction, although it was a very natural error. If in any animal which is recently killed you open one of those pulsating trunks which I referred to a short time ago, you will find as a general rule that it either contains no blood at all or next to none, but that on the contrary it is full of air. Very naturally, therefore, Erasistratus came to the conclusion that this was the normal and natural state of the arteries, and that they contained air. We are apt to think this a very gross blunder, 
but to anybody who is acquainted with the facts of the case it is at first sight an exceedingly natural conclusion not only so but erasistratus might have very justly imagined that he had seen his way to the meaning of the connection of the left side of the heart with the lungs for we find that what we now call the pulmonary vein is connected with the lungs and branches out in them finding that the greater part of this system of vessels was filled with air after death this ancient thinker very shrewdly concluded that its real business was to receive air from the lungs and to distribute that air all through the body so as to get rid of the grosser humours and purify the blood that was a very natural and very obvious suggestion and a highly ingenious one though it happened to be a great error you will observe that the only way of correcting it was to experiment upon living animals for there is no other way in which this point could be settled figure two the course of the blood according to galen AD and hence we are indebted for the correction of the error of erasistratus to one of the greatest experimenters of ancient or modern times claudius galenus who lived in the second century after christ i say it was to this man more than any one else because he knew that the only way of solving physiological problems was to examine into the facts in the living animal and because galen was a skilful anatomist and a skilful experimenter he was able to show in what particulars erasistratus had erred and to build up a system of thought upon this subject which was not improved upon for fully thirteen hundred years i have endeavoured in figure two to make clear to you exactly what it was he tried to establish you will observe that this diagram is practically the same as that given in figure one only simplified the same facts may be looked upon by different people from different points of view Galen looked upon these facts from a very different point of view from that which we ourselves occupy, but so far as the facts are concerned, they were the same for him as for us. Well then, the first thing that Galen did was to make out experimentally that, during life, the arteries are not full of air, but that they are full of blood. And he describes a great variety of experiments which he made upon living animals, with the view of proving this point which he did prove effectually and for all time and that you will observe was the only way of settling the matter furthermore he demonstrated that the cavities of the left side of the heart what we now call the left auricle and the left ventricle are like the arteries full of blood during life and that that blood was of the scarlet kind arterialized or as he called it pneumatized blood it was known before that the pulmonary artery the right ventricle and the veins contain the darker kind of blood which was thence called venous having proved that the whole of the left side of the heart during life is full of scarlet arterial blood galen's next point was to inquire into the mode of communication between the arteries and veins it was known before his time that both arteries and veins branched out galen maintained though he could not prove the fact that the ultimate branches of the arteries and veins communicated together somehow or other 
by what he called anastomoses and that these anastomoses existed not only in the body in general but also in the lungs in the next place galen maintained that all the veins of the body arise from the liver that they draw the blood thence and distribute it over the body people laugh at that notion nowadays but if anybody will look at the facts he will see that it is a very probable supposition there is a great vein hepatic vein figure one which rises out of the liver and that vein goes straight into the vena cava figure one which passes to the heart being there joined by the other veins of the body the liver itself is fed by a very large vein portal vein figure one which comes from the alimentary canal the way the ancients looked at this matter was that the food after being received into the alimentary canal was then taken up by the branches of this great vein which are called the vena porti just as the roots of a plant suck up nourishment from the soil in which it lives that then it was carried to the liver there to be what was called concocted which was their phrase for its conversion into substances more fitted for nutrition than previously existed in it they then supposed that the next thing to be done was to distribute this fluid through the body and galen like his predecessors imagined that the concocted blood having entered the great vena cava was distributed by its ramifications all over the body so that in his view figure two the course of the blood was from the intestine to the liver and from the liver into the great vena cava including what we now call the right auricle of the heart whence it was distributed by the branches of the veins but the whole of the blood was not thus disposed of part of the blood it was supposed went through what we now call the pulmonary arteries figure one and branching out there gave exit to certain fuliginous products and at the same time took in from the air a something which galen calls the pneuma he does not know anything about what we call oxygen but it is astonishing how very easy it would be to turn his language into the equivalent of modern chemical theory the old philosopher had so just a suspicion of the real state of affairs that you could make use of his language in many cases if you substituted the word oxygen which we nowadays use for the word pneuma then he imagined that the blood further concocted or altered by contact with the pneuma passed to a certain extent to the left side of the heart so that galen believed that there was such a thing as what is now called the pulmonary circulation he believed as much as we do that the blood passed through the right side of the heart through the artery which goes to the lungs through the lungs themselves and back by what we call the pulmonary veins to the left side of the heart but he thought it was only a very small portion of the blood which passes to the right side of the heart in this way the rest of the blood he thought passed through the partition which separates the two ventricles of the heart he describes a number of small pits which really exist there as holes 
and he supposed that the greater part of the blood passed through these holes from the right to the left ventricle figure two it is of great importance you should clearly understand these teachings of galen because as i said just now they sum up all that anybody knew until the revival of learning and they come to this that the blood having passed from the stomach and intestines through the liver and having entered the great veins was by them distributed to every part of the body that part of the blood thus distributed entered the arterial system by the anastomoses as galen called them in the lungs that a very small portion of it entered the arteries by the anastomoses in the body generally but that the greater part of it passed through the septum of the heart and so entered the left side and mingled with the pneumatized blood which had been subjected to the air in the lungs and was then distributed by the arteries and eventually mixed with the currents of blood coming the other way through the veins yet one other point about the views of galen he thought that both the contractions and dilatations of the heart what we call the systole or contraction of the heart and the diastole or dilatation galen thought that these were both active movements that the heart actively dilated so that it had a sort of sucking power upon the fluids which had access to it and again with respect to the movements of the pulse which anybody can feel at the wrist and elsewhere galen was of opinion that the walls of the arteries partook of that which he supposed to be the nature of the walls of the heart and that they had the power of alternately actively contracting and actively dilating so that he is careful to say that the nature of the pulse is comparable not to the movement of a bag which we fill by blowing into it and which we empty by drawing the air out of it but to the action of a bellows which is actively dilated and actively compressed figure three the course of the blood from the right to the left side of the heart realdus columbus fifteen fifty nine after galen's time came the collapse of the roman empire the extinction of physical knowledge and the repression of every kind of scientific inquiry by its powerful and consistent enemy the church and that state of things lasted until the latter part of the middle ages saw the revival of learning that revival of learning so far as anatomy and physiology are concerned is due to the renewed influence of the philosophers of ancient greece and indeed of galen arabic commentators had translated galen and portions of his works had got into the language of the learned in the middle ages in that way but by the study of the classical languages the original text became accessible to the men who were then endeavouring to learn for themselves something about the facts of nature it was a century or more before these men finding themselves in the presence of a master finding that all their lives were occupied in attempting to ascertain for themselves that which was familiar to him i say it took the best part of a hundred years before they could fairly see that their business was not to follow him but to follow his example 
namely to look into the facts of nature for themselves and to carry on in his spirit the work he had begun that was first done by vesalius one of the greatest anatomists who ever lived but his work does not specially bear upon the question we are now concerned with so far as regards the motions of the heart and the course of the blood the first man in the middle ages and indeed the only man who did anything which was of real importance was one realdus columbus who was professor at padua in the year fifteen fifty nine and published a great anatomical treatise what realdus columbus did was this once more resorting to the method of galen turning to the living animal experimenting he came upon new facts and one of these new facts was that there was not merely a subordinate communication between the blood of the right side of the heart and that of the left side of the heart through the lungs but that there was a constant steady current of blood setting through the pulmonary artery on the right side through the lungs and back by the pulmonary veins to the left side of the heart figure three such was the capital discovery and demonstration of realdus columbus he is the man who discovered what is loosely called the pulmonary circulation and it really is quite absurd in the face of the fact that twenty years afterwards we find ambrose pare the great french surgeon ascribing this discovery to him as a matter of common notoriety to find that attempts are made to give the credit of it to other people so far as i know this discovery of the course of the blood through the lungs which is called the pulmonary circulation is the one step in real advance that was made between the time of galen and the time of harvey and i would beg you to note that the word circulation is improperly employed when it is applied to the course of the blood through the lungs the blood from the right side of the heart in getting to the left side of the heart only performs a half circle it does not perform a whole circle it does not return to the place from whence it started and hence the discovery of the so-called pulmonary circulation has nothing whatever to do with that greater discovery which i shall point out to you by and by was made by harvey and which is alone really entitled to the name of the circulation of the blood if anybody wants to understand what harvey's great desert really was i would suggest to him that he devote himself to a course of reading which i cannot promise shall be very entertaining but which in this respect at any rate will be highly instructive namely the works of the anatomists of the latter part of the sixteenth century and the beginning of the seventeenth century if anybody will take the trouble to do that which i have thought it my business to do he will find that the doctrines respecting the action of the heart and the motion of the blood which were taught in every university in europe whether in padua or in paris were essentially those put forward by galen plus the discovery of the pulmonary course of the blood which had been made by realdus columbus in every chair of anatomy and physiology which studies were not then separated in europe it was taught that the blood brought to the liver by the portal vein and carried out of the liver to the vena cava by the hepatic vein is distributed from the right side of the heart through the other veins to all parts of the body 
that the blood of the arteries takes a like course from the heart towards the periphery and that it is there by means of the anastomoses more or less mixed up with the venous blood it so happens by a curious chance that up to the year sixteen twenty five there was at padua which was harvey's own university a very distinguished professor spigelius whose work is extant and who teaches exactly what i am now telling you it is perfectly true that some time before harvey's master fabricius had not only rediscovered but had drawn much attention to certain pouch-like structures which are called the valves of the veins found in the muscular parts of the body all of which are directed towards the heart and consequently impede the flow of the blood in the opposite direction and you will find it stated by people who have not thought much about the matter that it was this discovery of the valves of the veins which led harvey to imagine the course of the circulation of the blood now it did not lead harvey to imagine anything of the kind he had heard all about it from his master fabricius who made a great point of these valves in the veins and he had heard the theories which fabricius entertained upon the subject whose impression as to the use of the valves was simply this that they tended to take off any excessive pressure of the blood in passing from the heart to the extremities for fabricius believed with the rest of the world that the blood in the veins flowed from the heart towards the extremities this under the circumstances was as good a theory as any other because the action of the valves depends altogether upon the form and nature of the walls of the structures in which they are attached and without accurate experiment it was impossible to say whether the theory of fabricius was right or wrong but we not only have the evidence of the facts themselves that these could tell harvey nothing about the circulation but we have his own distinct declaration as to the considerations which led him to the true theory of the circulation of the blood and amongst these the valves of the veins are not mentioned figure four the circulation of the blood as demonstrated by harvey a d sixteen twenty eight now then we may come to harvey himself when you read harvey's treatise which is one of the most remarkable scientific monographs with which i am acquainted it occupies between fifty and sixty pages of a small quarto in latin and is as terse and concise as it possibly can be when you come to look at harvey's work you will find that he had long struggled with the difficulties of the accepted doctrine of the circulation he had received from fabricius and from all the great authorities of the day the current view of the circulation of the blood but he was a man with that rarest of all qualities intellectual honesty and by dint of cultivating that great faculty which is more moral than intellectual it had become impossible for him to say he believed anything which he did not clearly believe this is a most uncomfortable peculiarity for it gets you into all sorts of difficulties with all sorts of people but for scientific purposes it is absolutely invaluable harvey possessed this peculiarity in the highest degree 
and so it was impossible for him to accept what all the authorities told him and he looked into the matter for himself but he was not hasty he worked at his new views and he lectured about them at the college of physicians for nine years he did not print them until he was a man of fifty years of age and when he did print them he accompanied them with a demonstration which has never been shaken and which will stand till the end of time what harvey proved in short was this see figure four that everybody had made a mistake for want of sufficiently accurate experimentation as to the actual existence of the fact which everybody assumed to anybody who looks at the blood vessels with an unprejudiced eye it seems so natural that the blood should all come out of the liver and be distributed by the veins to the different parts of the body that nothing can seem simpler or more plain and consequently no one could make up his mind to dispute this apparently obvious assumption but harvey did dispute it and when he came to investigate the matter he discovered that it was a profound mistake and that all this time the blood had been moving in just the opposite direction namely from the small ramifications of the veins towards the right side of the heart harvey further found that in the arteries the blood as had previously been known was travelling from the greater trunks towards the ramifications moreover referring to the ideas of columbus and of galen for he was a great student of literature and did justice to all his predecessors harvey accepts and strengthens their view of the course of the blood through the lungs and he shows how it fitted into his general scheme if you will follow the course of the arrows in figure four you will see at once that in accordance with the views of columbus the blood passes from the right side of the heart through the lungs to the left side then adds harvey with abundant proof it passes through the arteries to all parts of the body and then at the extremities of their branches in the different parts of the body it passes in what way he could not tell for his means of investigation did not allow him to say into the roots of the veins then from the roots of the veins it goes into the trunk veins then to the right side of the heart and then to the lungs and so on that you will observe makes a complete circuit and it was precisely here that the originality of harvey lay there never yet has been produced and i do not believe there can be produced a tittle of evidence to show that before his time any one had the slightest suspicion that a single drop of blood starting in the left ventricle of the heart passes through the whole arterial system comes back through the venous system goes through the lungs and comes back to the place whence it started but that is the circulation of the blood and it was exactly this which harvey was the first man to suspect to discover and to demonstrate but this was by no means the only thing harvey did he was the first who discovered and who demonstrated the true mechanism of the heart's action no one before his time conceived that the movement of the blood 
was entirely due to the mechanical action of the heart as a pump there were all sorts of speculations about the matter but nobody had formed this conception and nobody understood that the so-called systole of the heart is a state of active contraction and the so-called diastole is a mere passive dilatation even within our own age that matter had been discussed harvey is as clear as possible about it he says the movement of the blood is entirely due to the contractions of the walls of the heart that it is the propelling apparatus and all recent investigation tends to show that he was perfectly right and from this followed the true theory of the pulse galen said as i pointed out just now that the arteries dilate as bellows which have an active power of dilatation and contraction and not as bags which are blown out and collapse harvey said it was exactly the contrary the arteries dilate as bags simply because the stroke of the heart propels the blood into them and when they relax again they relax as bags which are no longer stretched simply because the force of the blow of the heart is spent harvey has been demonstrated to be absolutely right in this statement of his and yet so slow is the progress of truth that within my time the question of the active dilatation of the arteries has been discussed thus harvey's contributions to physiology may be summed up as follows in the first place he was the first person who ever imagined and still more who demonstrated the true course of the circulation of the blood in the body in the second place he was the first person who ever understood the mechanism of the heart and comprehended that its contraction was the cause of the motion of the blood and thirdly he was the first person who took a just view of the nature of the pulse these are the three great contributions which he made to the science of physiology and i shall not err in saying i speak in the presence of distinguished physiologists but i am perfectly certain that they will endorse what i say that upon that foundation the whole of our knowledge of the human body with the exception of the motor apparatus and the sense organs has been gradually built up and that upon that foundation the whole rests and not only does scientific physiology rest upon it but everything like scientific medicine also rests upon it as you know i hope it is now a matter of popular knowledge it is the foundation of all rational speculation about morbid processes it is the only key to the rational interpretation of that commonest of all indications of disease the state of the pulse so that both theoretically and practically this discovery this demonstration of harvey's has had an effect which is absolutely incalculable and the consequences of which will accumulate from age to age until they result in a complete body of physiological science figure five the junction of the arteries and veins by capillary tubes discovered by malpighi a d sixteen sixty four i regret that i am unable to pursue this subject much further but there is one point i should mention in harvey's time the microscope was hardly invented 
it is quite true that in some of his embryological researches he speaks of having made use of a hand-glass but that was the most that he seems to have known anything about or that was accessible to him at that day and so it came about that although he examined the course of the blood in many of the lower animals watched the pulsation of the heart in shrimps and animals of that kind he never could put the final coping-stone on his edifice he did not know to the day of his death although quite clear about the fact that the arteries and the veins do communicate how it is that they communicate how it was that the blood of the arteries passed into the veins one is grieved to think that the grand old man should have gone down to his tomb without the vast satisfaction it would have given to him to see what the italian naturalist malpighi showed only seven years later in sixteen sixty four when he demonstrated in a living frog the actual passage of the blood from the ultimate ramifications of the arteries into the veins but that absolute ocular demonstration of the truth of the views he had maintained throughout his life it was not granted to harvey to see what he did experience was this that on the publication of his doctrines they were met with the greatest possible opposition and i have no doubt savage things were uttered in those old controversies and that a great many people said that these new-fangled doctrines reducing living processes to mere mechanism would sap the foundations of religion and morality i do not know for certain that they did but they said things very like it the first point was to show that harvey's views were absolutely untrue and not being able to succeed in that opponents said they were not new and not being able to succeed in that that they didn't matter that is the usual course with all new discoveries but harvey troubled himself very little about these things he remained perfectly quiet for although reputed a hot-tempered man he never would have anything to do with controversy if he could help it and he only replied to one of his antagonists after twenty years interval and then in the most charming spirit of candour and moderation but he had the great satisfaction of living to see his doctrine accepted upon all sides at the time of his death there was not an anatomical school in europe in which the doctrine of the circulation of the blood was not taught in the way in which harvey had laid it down in that respect he had a happiness which is granted to very few men i have said that the other great investigation of harvey is not one which can be dealt with to a general audience it is very complex and therefore i must ask you to take my word for it that although not so fortunate an investigation not so entirely accordant with later results as the doctrine of the circulation yet that still this little treatise of harvey's has in many directions exerted an influence hardly less remarkable than that exerted by the essay upon the circulation of the blood and now let me ask your attention to two or three closing remarks if you look back upon that period of about a hundred years which commences with harvey's birth i mean from the year fifteen seventy eight to sixteen eighty or thereabouts 
i think you will agree with me that it constitutes one of the most remarkable epochs in the whole of that thousand years which we may roughly reckon as constituting the history of britain in the commencement of that period we may see if not the setting at any rate the declension of that system of personal rule which had existed under previous sovereigns and which after a brief and spasmodic revival in the time of george the third has now sunk let us hope into the limbo of forgotten things the latter part of that hundred years saw the dawn of that system of free government which has grown and flourished and which if the men of the present day be the worthy descendants of elliot and pym and hamden and milton will go on growing as long as this realm lasts within that time one of the strangest phenomena which i think i may say any nation has ever manifested arose to its height and fell i mean that strange and altogether marvellous phenomenon english puritanism within that time england had to show statesmen like burley strafford and cromwell i mean men who were real statesmen and not intriguers seeking to make a reputation at the expense of the nation in the course of that time the nation had begun to throw off those swarms of hardy colonists which to the benefit of the world and as i fancy in the long run to the benefit of england herself have now become the united states of america and during the same epoch the first foundations were laid of that indian empire which it may be future generations will not look upon as so happy a product of english enterprise and ingenuity in that time we had poets such as spencer shakespeare and milton we had a great philosopher in hobbes and we had a clever talker about philosophy in bacon in the beginning of the period harvey revolutionized the biological sciences and at the end of it newton was preparing the revolution of the physical sciences i know not any period of our history i doubt if there be any period of the history of any nation which has precisely such a record as this to show for a hundred years but i do not recall these facts to your recollection for a mere vainglorious purpose i myself am of opinion that the memory of the great men of a nation is one of its most precious possessions not because we have any right to plume ourselves upon their having existed as a matter of national vanity but because we have a just and rational ground of expectation that the race which has brought forth such products as these may in good time and under fortunate circumstances produce the like again i am one of those people who do not believe in the natural decay of nations i believe to speak frankly though perhaps not quite so politely as i could wish but i am getting near the end of my lecture that the whole theory is a speculation invented by cowards to excuse knaves my belief is that so far as this old english stock is concerned it has in it as much sap and vitality and power as it had two centuries ago and that with due pruning of rotten branches and due hoeing up of weeds which will grow about the roots the like products will be yielded again 
the weeds to which i refer are mainly three the first of them is dishonesty the second is sentimentality and the third is luxury if william harvey had been a dishonest man i mean in the high sense of the word a man who failed in the ideal of honesty he would have believed what it was easiest to believe that which he received on the authority of his predecessors he would not have felt that his highest duty was to know of his own knowledge that that which he said he believed was true and we should never have had those investigations pursued through good report and evil report which ended in discoveries so fraught with magnificent results for science and for man if harvey had been a sentimentalist by which i mean a person of false pity a person who has not imagination enough to see that great distant evils may be much worse than those which we can picture to ourselves because they happen to be immediate and near for that i take it is the essence of sentimentalism if harvey had been a person of that kind he being one of the kindest men living would never have pursued those researches which as he tells us over and over again he was obliged to pursue in order to the ascertainment of those facts which have turned out to be of such inestimable value to the human race and i say if on such grounds he had failed to do so he would have failed in his duty to the human race the third point is that harvey was devoid of care either for wealth or for riches or for ambition the man found a higher ideal than any of these things in the pursuit of truth and the benefit of his fellow-men if we all go and do likewise i think there is no fear for the decadence of england i think that our children and our successors will find themselves in a commonwealth different it may be from that for which Eliot and pym and hamden struggled but one which will be identical in the substance of its aims great worthy and well to live in end of william harvey and the discovery of the circulation of the blood by thomas h huxley recording by ruth golding